have nearly the time this morning to do justice to this entire passage, so we're going to summarize in a lot of ways. But you need some context first to understand what's going on here, uh, and you need to go back to chapter 13 in particular, because this vision is closely linked to what we see all throughout chapter 13. If you remember, you have the beast from the sea and the beast from the land, uh, both who are empowered by the dragon, who is Satan. And these two represent, first, the social forces in the world that are in service to darkness. And secondly, the propaganda forces in the world that are in service to darkness. And those appear in all sorts of places, both surprising and unsurprising, but probably most clearly in the governmental and religious structures that exist in the world. And this would have made a lot of sense to the people living in the first century. And it's a little bit harder for us to identify with. But the big thing that comes out of here is you see that the beast hates the followers of Jesus Christ and makes war against them and kills them. And that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel right. It feels like the people who are the good guys shouldn't, if there is a good and just God, actually be subject to the whims of the bad guys all the time. Bad guys shouldn't win. And there is a sense, of course, in which the bad guys won't win, but it doesn't always make sense to us living in the moment. I was thinking this as we were praying over so many different things, as we were talking about how the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I actually said this, uh, that Christ gave his body to brokenness so that our bodies wouldn't break anymore, and yet our bodies break. Right? So either I'm smoking something really good, I don't know if I should make that joke in church, or... Or, I don't understand actually what's going on. I'm a false prophet in that sense. Or, we mean something a little different than we might imagine when we say Jesus broke his body so that our bodies would no longer break. And it's that last thing that's true. Because this world is temporary. This world is passing away. And it doesn't matter if you're religious or not. You know it. You know it. You're going to die. I guarantee it, as a matter of fact. I'm comfortable making that guarantee. It's going to happen. You know, the, the earth will run out of resources. The sun will stop shining. The universe itself, actually, if you ever read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books, there's one of those books. It's called The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. And it's about a place outside of time that people go to see the great collapse of the universe back in on itself and the undoing of everything at the end of the day. That might be too nerdy a reference for some of you, but that's okay. The basic idea is everything in this world ends, period, without exception. Everything here is temporary. And so when Jesus starts talking about things like eternal life, he is talking about a different sort of world entirely. And in his death and resurrection, that world is invading this one. And the people and the powers that are happy with the way this world is, always foolishly, because their lives will end as well, but often because they think that they have it good in this life, and you and I may even count ourselves among those people, are happy with the status quo. See, the, often the big evil in the world is not the innovator, but the status quo. Because the status quo is death at the end of the day. 
And the beast is, and the dragon are reveling in maintaining their status quo, in which they are the people of power, and in which they dominate. And Jesus tells all of the Christians, I want you to walk the way that I walked. I want you to live the way that I lived, which ultimately culminates in the cross. And the people of Jesus Christ are not always on board with that and not always sure how that works out. And so where chapter 13 tells us the hard truth about the world as it is, hey, you know, you're probably, the the beast is reigning, he is rampaging, and you're probably going to get hurt and you may even die. The Christians are saying, but but then what? There's got to be something else to this story. And that's where chapter 14 comes in. I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, the 144,000 comes from earlier in the book of Revelation from the seal judgments, and they represent all of God's people, past, present, and future. So you and I are here. Did you know we're in the Bible? Here we are, standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion as one of the 144,000. And then it says we have Jesus' name and his Father's name written on our foreheads. And the reason it says this is because in chapter 13, the beast forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. He's saying there are two two categories of people in the world, those who have given their loyalty to the beast, which is what the mark of the beast signifies, and those who are giving their loyalty to Jesus Christ, who are marked as his own. Maybe this is the same thing as the way the 144,000 were sealed all the way back in, I think it was chapter 6. This is the seal, the name of God and of his Son. On his people. And what does the seal do for God's people? Well, it protects them from harm. But clearly, Revelation doesn't have in mind it protects them from any possible harm you can think of, but rather it protects them from harm that will cause them to run away from the lamb and into the arms of the beast. It preserves them as the lamb's own property. And then what do we know about us and all of the others who are marked with God's name? I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. And the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. It's this great, crashing, enormous, overwhelming sound. And why? Why are they doing this? Well, because they're singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could even learn the song except for the church, except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those, in case you're wondering who they are, who did not defile themselves with women. That takes a little translation for a 21st century audience. I'll get there in just a sec. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Remember what Jesus said? Follow me. And they do it. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. First fruits. It's the beginning of the harvest. And it often signifies another, you know, more harvest to come. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But first fruits were also the sacrifice that God asked for from his people. And we see it was always God's intention that his people be a sacrifice. 
This isn't surprising because that's what Jesus was. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. That is sacrifice. But the other thing about sacrifice is it brings God glory. Our lives following Jesus Christ are meant to bring God glory. Now let's go back to the, uh, the people who did not defile themselves with women who remained virgins. There are a couple of things you need to know here. First of all, in the ancient world, when people would go to war, they would often abstain from sex to keep themselves ritually pure. And so what God is saying here, what he's communicating to us, is here are people who kept themselves pure. And the main way these people have kept themselves pure is they haven't given their loyalty to the beast, to the power of evil in the world. They haven't worshipped the false god. God's favorite way of describing, especially in the Old Testament, worship of other gods is marital unfaithfulness. To say, you, you are God's bride, and yet you have gone to other husbands. So the point here is not that these people are really virgins in the most physical sense you can imagine. The point, as a matter of fact, isn't that they're only men. These are those who do not defile themselves with women. But remember, in the ancient world, the men fought, not the women. But the point is, these are God's people who gave their loyalty to no one else. And so they sing this new song. Now, let me, let me ask you something. M music's a powerful thing, isn't it? Music's a powerful thing. There's a great uh, scene in uh, the Monty Python movie, uh, The Quest for the Holy Grail, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, whatever it's called, where there is this, this uh, prince in a castle, and his dad wants him to marry uh, this, this other woman who uh, is very wealthy, and he doesn't want to get married to this woman. This is not an entirely PG scene, I suppose. But uh, he keeps trying to burst into song. This is what I really want. I don't want to get married. What I really want to do with my life is sing. <laughs> I don't know if this is a very good illustration, but music is a powerful thing in our lives. It, it connects with us on this deep, deep level. When people want to tell someone, when, it, when a man wants to tell a woman how much he loves her, he might write her a song, which might be kind of dorky, but you might also have a love song. That's your song. Right? It marks a special moment in your life. It marks a special relationship within your life. When we go to praise God, part of what we do is we sing because it engages so much of who we are at the same time. It engages our head with the lyrics. We're singing words that mean something. It engages our hearts with the emotional attachment that music builds in us. And so when it starts, when it says here that these people, the 144,000, they learned a new song and only they could sing it. It's not just like a, a song you hear on the radio. You know, it's like the other movie. Man, I'm only quoting 80s movies at the moment, I think. But there's The Jerk. You remember Steve Martin back in the 80s? And he, he's, he grows up a young, a poor black boy, if you remember the movie, in, in the country somewhere. And they're singing like a black spiritual. And he, he, he can't quite like, he, he can't quite clap with the beat. He doesn't get it. And then he hears some music on the radio that's maybe more his speed, and he starts like, he's got this dance going on. He's able to keep the beat because it really connects with him. 
right? Music is something that, that, that really connects. It's not just this arbitrary song that's out there. It's music that lifts your soul, that changes who you are, that marks a moment in your life. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live the sort of life where we always wanted to burst out in song? And that's what's being described here. And we can't always see that right now, can we? Because we're about to head off to Stanford again. Because we have all these family members who are hurting. Because our bodies aren't working the right way. Because our recovery is hard. Because sin keeps on attacking us and trying to change our loyalty. It doesn't feel like a life where every moment we're about to burst into song. But Revelation is all about pulling back the curtain and saying, but this is who you are. There is a thing that theologians call inaugurated eschatology, which is an unnecessarily complicated word or phrase, which means it is already happening, but also not yet happening. It's begun, inaugurated, and eschatology means it's the study of the last things. The end has already begun, but it's not here yet. And sometimes we have those moments where the curtain's pulled back, don't we? And we gotta sing. We gotta do something. You ever had that moment in your body where you're like, I, 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 there is something happening in me right now. It is so profound that I, I want to jump up and punch the air, you know, do that big heel click that people do. I, I want to burst into song. I want to do this thing. And what God is saying is that's the truth about who you are in Jesus Christ. That's the truth. And you only know it in just this little bit right now, in these, these little glimpses right now. But that is the great reality. And why do you think the beast attacks so hard? Why do you think the, the beast is trying to make Christians miserable? as much as possible, and make life as difficult as possible, because he wants us to believe the lie that that's not the way it is. We're not about to start singing at any moment. Things really are terrible, and that is the last word in our lives. But in chapter 13, it says repeatedly that the beast is a liar. Because of the signs, chapter 13, verse 14, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. I have the only way, and you must follow me. I'll give you the little remnants of joy that are left in this world if you follow me. And God's saying, yeah, there are only remnants of joy left in your world, but my world is coming, and it's full of joy that never ends. And then the curtain gets pulled back again says, this is the truth about you. You are not a people without a song. You are a people with the most wonderful song you can imagine when you remain faithful, when you remain loyal, when you do the hard thing, even if it hurts right now. Then he goes on and he says, then I saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel. Gospel means good news. He had the eternal good news to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. No one is outside of his voice he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Repent. 
you don't have to live like this anymore, but you can only live differently if you'll stop living like this. To which the great theological truth of duh must be given. Do you want a different life? Then you need a different life. Stop trying to live this one. And a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. There are going to be whole chapters about Babylon the great in a couple of weeks here. But for now, all we need to see is Rome is broken. Caesar no longer has his way because he chose the way of the dragon. And he will be judged. And praise God that he will be judged. Because injustice is worth judging. Because those who lie and cheat and steal to gain power and a good life for themselves deserve judgment. Praise God that Caesar is judged. But then here's the harder thing. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury. If you have given your loyalty to Caesar, if you have said his way is the only way, even if you go, I really don't like it, I think it's terrible, if you choose the way of Babylon, choose the way of the dragon, you will also receive what the dragon gets because you're in cahoots because you've become part of the problem. Maybe you didn't fully realize what you were doing, but... There is a sense where ignorance has to be no excuse, isn't there? We can't just let people, God can't just let people rampage around destroying things, even if they had good intentions in their hearts, because things are still destroyed. And because the first angel has already shared the good news of who God is, and it's reached every ear. And a third angel followed them, Oh, that's where we are. Excuse me. And then there's one last scene in this chapter. Well, you know what? The last scene is the reaping of the earth. The reaping of the wheat represents the reaping of God's fruitful people into life. The reaping of the grapes represents the reaping of those who have made alliance with the beast into judgment. But in between, just before that, it says this. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now, at first, recognize that's almost a nonsensical statement because dead people aren't blessed, right? Dead people are dead. Dead people don't do anything. Dead people don't receive anything. Dead people are dead, not blessed. But here's what God says. That's the way it should be. And yet, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Because, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. You know what the easiest thing in the world to do is? Let let me put it to you as a question, different question. What's easier, to destroy or to create? Destroy. What's uh, uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines, right? I don't think I've ever seen an episode of whatever their famous show is, but I do know what Chip Gaines' favorite day is. What's Chip's favorite day? Demo day, right? You get out the sledgehammer and you start beating the snot out of the house until you get rid of all the stuff that shouldn't be there anymore. It is so much, part of the reason it's his favorite day is it's easy, right? And it's, it's immediately gratifying and, and satisfying. 
You knock out the cabinets and they're done. And because Chip's the GC, he can get his guys to come in and clean up when he's done too. So he's really lucky. His favorite day really is demo day. It's much easier to destroy than it is to create. And so it feels like destruction is the more powerful thing in our world. Right? If you've got the power, if you've got the biggest army, you make the rules. You get your way. That's the easy way to realize your vision for the way the world should be. But it's not the way of Jesus Christ. God says it looks like the powers of death and destruction are winning out in the world. Those are easy things to subscribe to, easy things to do, and they make you feel strong. But blessed are those who are mowed down by those forces because they were faithful to me, because their deeds will follow them. and because they will have rest. And that means that destruction may win the day, but then it's done, and you forget the destroyer. The people who follow Jesus and walk the way of the Lamb, their deeds are remembered, and they live on forever. And there's nothing that can be added to them. They don't have to keep working and working and working. They rest from their labor. What's the truth about the world that we live in? The truth is God's people have a song to sing. Not the song of the beast, the song of Jesus Christ. That it follows us, it rescues us and saves us even from death, and it gives us rest.